welcome to the Mad Mum Loops. I'm Mahin, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sim and Summer. And today we welcome back to the show one of our more popular guests, Daniel Hokikachu, who joins us in studio tonight after a long flight from Dallas, Texas, which shouldn't have been that long, but I guess they had you sitting around for whatever reason. I guess the weather was bad. Yeah, I was delayed an hour and a half, but I'm glad I'm here. Appreciate it. Well, you know, and it's almost midnight here in Chicago. We we're supposed to feed you dinner, but we haven't yet because we don't want you going to have, get an itis and not and fall asleep during the podcast. Cause the, we got some pizza waiting for you. The deep dish from Lou Malnati's is in the oven. That's the uh, classic dish that we give to all of our guests who come here from out of state. But uh, Daniel is special to us because. The guy is a ratings monster. He's our, he's a, got that top three spot locked in for. It's like Casey Kasem, right? Like yeah. top forty, but you're top. You're number three. <laughs> yeah, he's he's locked it down for the past uh, four four months. Like no one's coming close to touching him. Yeah, and D- Daniel's haters are probably really butthurt. <laughs> <laughs> him and Doctor Shadi actually. Dr. Shadi and uh, Joe Bradford. Oh yeah, these three guys aren't letting anyone come near them. In the rating, so wait, I don't have any haters. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> See recent Facebook post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? What? what, it's what all love, Daniel man. strikes again. Yeah, it, it, like it's it just funny. I, I love how you your caption. OMG, sweetheart, <laughs> Habibti, who does this so-called father think he is? And what's this ref- in reference to? It's about some like sister who like texts his dad, Baba. I want to tell you something. Talk to me. Yeah, I'm okay. I was I, I, this Arabic in here. I can't read. What, what does that Arabic say somewhere? I don't know. I don't have. <laughs> I'm, I'm failing. Like, I'm failing. Falaki. You're kidding. You're like level three now. You should know this. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I was thinking. I want to take my hijab off, sweetheart. That's not my decision to make. That's no man's decision to make. If it's what you feel like you want to do, go ahead. I'll support you no matter what. Is everything okay? Did something happen? Do you want to smoke some cocaine? <laughs> No. Thanks, Mahin. Thanks for that very accurate play-by-play. But that was in the comments, though, because I think somebody plugged that cocaine joke in later. But So apparently uh, this... The internet blew up, yeah. right? Because somebody said you, no man should decide whether or not his daughter should wear hijab. Um, before we like jump right into all of it, let's give it a little bit of context. Um, so this young girl, she's online, you know, talking about hijab, talking about Muslims, mashallah, representing. And somebody is like, oh, well, you know, if you ever take your hijab off, some, your dad is going to whoop you, you know. And so from that, she's like, OK, let's, you know, call this person's bluff. And she like puts it out there for her father and then shares the response. And then Daniel's got uh Daniel's got some perspective on that, so we can talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about it. Um, I think it's questionable whether this was a real exchange between a daughter and her father in Saudi. I mean, the facts of the situation haven't really come to light, so it's all just hearsay at this point. But it's definitely, it was, I, I saw on social media a lot of people kind of sharing this and being very excited about it, but I didn't really see what the excitement about was about. It seemed to be very problematic uh, from an Islamic perspective, and um, you know we can we can get into the details of that. In Saudi Arabia, I, maybe the dad was thinking, you know what, she can take the hijab off. The religious police will just nail her outside. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't really got to do worry about it. Well, I think to say that oh, the dad, whatever that he said in the tweet is problematic and. 
that's assuming that that's where the only conversation about hijab has happened or that's how he's parenting her to wear hijab or not wear hijab. And, you know, it's assuming that there's no further conversation there, you know. And for me, as someone who wears hijab, who's been wearing it for over, you know, 15 years, I know I've known girls who, you know, you walk out the door and, you know, your parents don't know what you're doing out there. You know, if you decide to take it off and stick in your backpack, put it back on on your way home, they will be none the wiser for the most part. I mean, unless you live like in Chicago, you know, parents will be like, oh, such and such auntie saw you. They know what's going on. But so for me, it was really kind of like, wow, this girl is talking to her father. And so whether or not he is trying to say, okay, hijab is mandatory or this or that, the biggest point that I was getting from that was he's leaving the doors of conversation open to his daughter for this issue and for any issues down the line. She knows she can like text her dad and be like hey dad this is what's going on with me what do you think and that way you have that channel of communication which is like so crucial for parents just knowing that all the things our kids are going through to keep those doors of communication open are so vital right but that that's not why this uh screenshot of this message between father and daughter went viral right if it was just about like parents keeping the doors of communication open with their kids like that wouldn't be big news it was the subtext. It was this projection of kind of like hijab is just a personal choice and it has no moral uh, implications. And we that's all just know not that hijab has moral implications. That's not no, a new and that's thing. not that's not the case. I think a lot of people don't think it has any moral implications. Well, we or they... fixate on hijab a lot, and we talk about hijab a sure. lot, and. Everyone has some kind of like two cents to say who should wear it, how much they should wear it, whether your bangs should be out or like, is that shirt too tight and this and that. Well, that's something that to say to people who are. Yeah. So I didn't share that. I didn't make that exchange go viral. Right. So it's other people who are sharing it, not me. I was commenting on the reaction. Right. um, That I saw in social media and the excitement at this idea that, you know, uh, Hijab is just a personal choice. And I wrote an article in Muslim Matters recently about this distinction between preferential choice and moralistic choice. And the example that I give is like if, imagine me as a son, I tell my dad, guess what, dad, Um, I think I want to try drinking. Uh, I think I want to try smoking. I think I want to have a girlfriend and start having sex at a a young age. You know, what would a dad's uh, responsible dad's Muslim or non-Muslim, for that matter, how how should he respond? So there's a distinct there's a difference between like having the doors of communication open and you know being in that fatherly role and making sure that you're not alienating your your child, but you're also a moral authority. You're also as a father supposed to, however you're going to do it, like you with uh, ideally like with wisdom and with gentleness and care be able to convey that, look, uh, drinking is something that's wrong. You're going to be held accountable for that. That's going to affect you in this life and the next life. Having sex before marriage or outside of marriage, that's wrong. It's going to affect you It's in this life and the next. Same thing with hijab. It's not like, oh, it's just your choice. No one can you know, decide for you. It's true. Like you can, you can choose to drink like in Islam, like uh, we acknowledge that people have agency. They can choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing. But it's not like a choice that has no moral impact or no moral uh, influence. The context of this exchange, though, is 
what really intrigued me and what what touched me as a father of a teenage daughter. And as I thought about my relationship with my daughter and how we came to understand uh, or came to the arrival of the decision where she was wearing the hijab on a regular basis, I thought about it and I thought about my role in my relationship with, with her. How old is she? She's 15. And, or 14, sorry. Um, she chose to do it, but we, we made the, we set up the culturing very early on where she didn't have to, it, it wasn't much of a choice for her from, from the beginning where, whereas, um, we kind of set up a, a very Islamic culture in our household, um, in terms of, uh, all of her, all of her aunts and everyone that she knew were wearing hijab and, We've always talked to her about how hijab always protects her modesty and and all the all the different things related to hijab and its importance, right? So setting up that environment was very easy for us in that sense. But what really upset me with that with that exchange with his daughter was kind of a flippant attitude towards that because the father is is a protector of his daughter right at this that's how i see my relationship with my daughters is, is one of the main roles is being their protector and making sure that that their um their modesty is being protected and everything else, everything about them is being protected right and including modesty so that 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 uh, exchange really upset me because it it showed that you know fathers can uh, kind of take that role back away from themselves uh, as a as a protector, you know, uh, and, and just leave the the choice in their hands. Whereas, I don't think a young child can make that decision for themselves, where they know what's right for them or or what's wrong for them. We we can't allow them to just make it that choice just to just to fight this stereotypical idea that oh, you know, um, uh, the typical Muslim man is a controlling man and he's. He's out there to control his woman in his in his protection, and just because I have to fight the stereotype, I'm gonna uh, be flipping about it, you know. Yeah, it was like he was going out of his way to kind of give a politically correct answer, and it it seemed very fake to me. But I mean, I like I said, I haven't confirmed anything uh, either way. But I agree with you. It just seemed like he was fine to kind of give a very P, like PC and liberal kind of perspective to his daughter whereas that's not something naturally that a father would do like i'm thinking of an example like imagine if like let's make it not be a gendered issue between man you know boys and girls let's say like my son came to me and i do have you know three boys and said you know i want to you know uh, get a mohawk i don't know or i want to like get piercings or i want to get a tattoo right? right Some a tattoo is also something that's impermissible. Like I would, I wouldn't say, no, you're not gonna do that. You know, you better get back in the house and you know you're grounded. You're never gonna leave. You know, un, as long as you're under my roof, you're gonna follow my rules. Yeah, that's something that might not be very wise. You know, that might cause him to rebel even more. He might hate my guts, and that would cause other problems. But I would still want to convey to him like this is a wrong thing. That's this is a, a bad decision to want to go get a tattoo. This is something that he should avoid, and I would try to convey that in a very wise way. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't compromise on the moral side of the issue, the Islamic side of the issue. And I felt like with that in that particular conversation with that daughter and father, the father didn't really give any moral perspective. He just gave, he, you know. 
the daughter could have texted him about like, oh, you know, I, I want to pursue like I'm in college. I want to start studying engineering instead of getting my MD, like just something that's preferential. Like, oh, that will no... get you disowned in Chicago. <laughs> but more, more than more than anything, though, forget about the hijab for a second. It's the reactionary attitude that is prevalent throughout Muslim culture, whether it's fighting a stereotype of a Muslim woman who is fully veiled and in wearing niqab. And now you're seeing all these people who are, you know, Muslim women who are fighting these stereotypes in um, by dressing in a, a way that is uh, considered immodest by uh, many Muslims. Even non-Muslims will say, like, hey, I thought hijab was... Uh, supposed to be something of modesty, and you're decked out in a flimsy hijab, and you're wearing an inch thick of makeup, you know? So, th- th- it's like these reactionary attitudes are prevailing in our community, where everything that is being said about Islam, well, we have to prove it otherwise by doing something completely the opposite of it, just to fight that stereotype. Well, I think sometimes it's not necessarily someone that's going out there to prove that they're different but sometimes it's we really are a very diversified muslim ummah like we're like a billion people so nobody's gonna fit into that box you know and now we're just seeing people becoming more vocal and trying to put that but we're talking about in the west right in the west we're much more smaller we're not a billion and we're and this is what we're fighting every day uh, our and culturally, we're becoming more diversified, right? Because we come from maybe conservative backgrounds or more, um, you know. Well, there are certain issues that are not, uh, it's not a matter of diversity. Like this is like an Islamic position. Like this is what is um, the ruling, like the hukma of a certain issue. Sure, we understand There are the like ruling. in terms of culture, like what kinds of cuisine or specific, you know, kinds of I mean, cultural practices. Of fine, there's diversity. But in terms of dress, in terms of dress like there's islamic standards and it's not about like oh this is one muslim perspective versus another no we have like a, a definite answer this is what allah and his messenger sallallahu have said about it what about I the think, what about I the angle the... real quick the angle about where she was being harassed like is that something we take into context legally like if like because that's happened that's a, that's a new thing right under um, modern day america you know, a lot of sisters are fearful of wearing hijab, and they've taken hijab off as a result. You know, but sometimes that fear is some concocted, like, it, it's maybe it's real, but maybe it's some bogeyman. You know what I mean? Like, where where does that fit in, too? Because I think that, wasn't that a part of the context? It was. It was part of the context. She was being bullied online. But I think it's important, like, okay, with the example that you said with tattooing and that helps to, okay, remove gender from the issue. And then I think it's more clear for people to see, okay, the parent can have a very specific, very moralistic opinion on the issue, right? That's based in Islamic ruling. But then how you execute at that at that as a parent is going to involve hikmah. It's not going to involve like, okay, now I will lay down the law on you and execute the fiqh on you and whatever shape that takes, you know? So I think that's really important to notice. So yeah, maybe he's saying it's not a man's decision to make. He has his own opinion. The father has a right to have his own opinion and he has a right to convey that opinion to his daughter, right? But ultimately, uh, we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but maybe you can expound on it now, is that how do you exert that control? You know, you don't necessarily exert control of your opinion on um on your children. For example, my husband and I, we differ about halal meat, right? This is going <laughs> to cause so much controversy in Chicago. But, you know, just because I decide to eat a 
chicken chalupa or something like that. He may differ from me, but he's still going to sit across the table from me and eat, you know, and how we discuss that and how we go about it does not necessarily mean that it's uh, a man's decision to make whether what what type of meat I'm eating or whether or not I'm wearing hijab. Yeah, it isn't a man's decision. We're not talking about so issues that are up to personal opinion, like you can take different positions and there's a spectrum on that. Fine, like let's put those cases aside. But if there it's a clear cut issue in Islamic law and fiqh and there's a clear ruling on it, yeah, it's no it's not a man's decision. This is Allah's decision, right? So this is something that we as parents um or community leaders have to convey and like you said, we're not going to be able to necessarily enforce it in a physical way. Like, I'm not expecting the dad to take his daughter and say, okay, I'm locking you up in the house and you better do it as I say. Um, that's not uh, what I'm advocating here. Like, that wouldn't be uh, uh, wise and, and it wouldn't be correct because um, to exert that kind of coercion on a, an adult, um, that's something that's prohibited. But as far as having a moral uh, voice and conveying the message, conveying what's right and wrong, that's something that needs to be emphasized in these kinds of scenarios. And parents shouldn't kind of um, shy away from that and, and shy away behind this kind of politically uh, correct uh, status quo attitude that uh, is kind of neutering the parent. Uh, and their ability to convey right and wrong to their children. I think it's it's a big problem, and especially with hijab. Like, hijab has become something that has been divorced from any kind of moral uh, significance. Uh, like, oh, it's just a personal choice. Like, a woman should have a choice. Yes, a you have a choice with any kind of moral decision, right? But it's still a moral decision. Like, you can choose to violate the law. You can choose to commit sins, right? But that has weight, that has consequences, whether in this life or the next. And so that's something that needs to be conveyed. It's something that can't be uh, brushed under the rug. Can we define uh, from the loosest uh, legal opinion what hijab constitutes? Like I've always understood, for example, like in the Hanafi school, the woman can leave her face, her hands, and her feet uncovered. The other schools require the feet to even be covered. Some of the schools, some opinions require the face to be covered. What is the, if we want to take the, the most lenient, acceptable approach by the scholars, is there a standard that we can kind of go back to? I mean, that's not something that's within my expertise to comment on, like that aspect of the fiqh um, across schools. But I think like as far as hijab, like covering the... Uh, the hair, um, that was the issue under contention with that series of messages. So I think that Islam's position on that is very clear and there's unanimity of opinion on that amongst the fuqaha. I think let's go back to the point that Mahin was also talking about how it can become a safety issue. You know, I think Sim mentioned that, you know, protection for your daughter's feeling like, okay, hijab is part of that protection. But, um, you know, growing up in Mississippi, my dad, when I told him I wanted to wear hijab, he was like, whoa, slow down. You know, we're in rural Mississippi, you know, yeah. surrounded by, you know, very conservative um, white people. And it's going to be difficult for you, you know. So there was a lot of kind of protection from that side. And then now you I, know, I think I would be like that, too. Yeah. I that think environment, it was very scary. Knowing but, that state, mm -hmm. uh, Alabama and Mississippi, mm -hmm. 
um, and even I would say Indiana right. um, to a certain extent. Um, those states have historically been known to have very high rates of uh, discrimination and violence towards uh, minorities. So Absolutely. And so, so like kind of the issue now becomes that whenever a woman does choose to wear hijab, it goes even further beyond that moralistic choice that you're making. You're like, okay, I'm doing this to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm doing this to protect my modesty and be identified as a Muslim woman. And now being identified as a Muslim woman kind of puts you in the crosshairs of a lot of racism and you're visibly identifiable. And to be able to walk around with that, it takes a lot of courage too, you know, right. on a daily basis. And it, you know, uh, mine was saying sometimes it's like a boogeyman, but honestly, it's not just a boogeyman, whether some of it is, um, you know, kind of souped up because we hear about every single incident so much through social media walking out being identifiably muslim is is definitely something that's scary and i feel like maybe as a brazen 15 year old i was like whatever i don't care what anyone thinks of me and i would wear like black hijab black abaya every day to school right but now like with two young children in tow I do think twice. I'm like, let me wear a bright colored hijab or let me like, you know, seem more personable. So safety is a concern, I think. Yeah, know? absolutely. I agree. It's definitely a concern. And I, um, you know, my wife wears hijab and I get, uh, you know, I, I still worry like in the day to day, like if she goes somewhere like to the grocery store, even though it's like less than a mile away and she's driving and um, like there hasn't been any incident. I still like in the back of my mind, I'm like, looking at the watch and like worrying like okay and i think that's natural like i don't think it's uh, i mean i don't think it's trumped up i don't think no uh, pun intended oh yeah no pun intended i mean like uh when we were really worried was um in 2015 with the san bernardino shootings yes that was such a game changer yeah because we were in san bernardino uh my wife and i we, wow. you know we were living there with uh our kids and um that was something that we were really uh we were i was telling her like we shouldn't really go out um for at least a couple of days till things get get cleared up uh because the it was a husband and wife allegedly um that were responsible for those shootings and they were being you know shown on tv 24 7 and you know we kind of bearded man hijab woman like we kind of looked like that so um being right in that county like right in that same city uh that was really nerve-wracking and so i, I don't know if it's a boogeyman but um definitely something that sisters have to uh and their families have to be concerned about as far as like if it's um if there's a dispensation for uh taking off the hijab like uh, i've heard that there there is a fatwa on that um, I don't know the entire conditions, like what has been spelled out, like that requires more research. But... We did an episode with Yasser Qadi and he talked about it and he said that if there is immediate danger that, you know, it's very circumstantial. I think he left it to the leaders of their community, of your respective community to make that call. Yeah, I and... think even uh, right after the San Bernardino shootings, there were a lot of, you know, girls that were being advised like, wear hats or hoodies or something that may like, you know, kind of take the the visual aspect a little bit away from you and distract from that as opposed to just wearing hijab. So right. can I ask you, Summer, can I ask you a question? Were yeah. you, when you started wearing hijab, was that pre 9-11 or post 9-11? Um, it was pre 9-11. Pre 9-11, yeah. See, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the whole Mississippi thing, right? Because uh, I'll tell you, I'll 
tell a funny story. My wife's also from Mississippi. She's from the Delta. So is Tupelo more rednecky than a Delta, or are they both both pretty hickish? I think are, they, um, are these real words hickish rednecky? Yeah. So far, you're 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 you're, hickish, you're within the PC bounds. I don't have to edit anything out. <laughs> Cracker Jack towns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tupelo is further north, um, but you do have a majority population where it's very like um, conservative, white, Republican, Christian, Southern Baptist, and then you have a usually lower income. Um, African American population, so about it's about like sixty forty split. Okay, yeah, I don't know how the Delta. Delta, I know, is pretty like like it's like blues country, right? So a lot of African poor African American. But anyways, um, so my wife when she applied for residency at University of Chicago, she's a physician. She was telling me the story where a lot of times what, hap- what happens is when you apply, the residents look at your profile. They interview a lot of the incoming candidates, and there was a one of her who ended up being her co-workers she was a senior resident saw her profile she grew from california and she was like really impressed it's like whoa this girl's from mississippi and she wears hijab you know in mississippi the only kind of group of people they hate more than black folks are muslims so she must be tough so she tells a story later to my wife and my wife's like no i'm not really that tough they're just really nice because she's big on that whole southern hospitality hospitality the thing you know people in mississippi really nice and then some people, like my in-laws will say, they're really nice, and maybe they're racist, but they at least do a good job of disguising it under, like, politeness, <laughs> so to speak. You know, I think there is a clear contrast in, like, pre-9-11 and then uh, post-9-11 and what's happened now with Islamophobia. As, you know, in being in high school and wearing it there, I would get a lot of questions from people, but it was also kind of... We don't know anything about you. You are very foreign to the point where we don't know whether we should hate you or not, you know? So there was this kind of um, very newness, very freshness to it. And granted, yeah, I was an oddball out of 2,000 students being the only one that was visibly Muslim. But um, and there were no other brown kids either, like other than like my siblings. So wait, h- how many the- how many incidents of Islamophobia have you encountered personally? I'd just be curious to know just blatant Islamophobic behavior from anyone in whatever state at least half a dozen six yeah at least and then so you know that before 9-11 and even after 9-11 there was that okay what is islam and so they would ask questions in that way but then after san bernardino and kind of these more recent uh incidents that have happened now because that islamophobia has been like the fans the fans have been flaming that fire for a very long time now it's like wait i I may still think wrong things about you, and I may still not know what Islam really is, but I have all these ideas about you, and I, I, I've already made you out to be an enemy, you know? So, I mean, in the South, I will say that even though I did have, like, half a dozen, you know, incidences, and some even here in Chicago, but um, there was still that kind of Southern hospitality, well, like, where are you from, and wow, your English is so good, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, there would be some things like that, but See, it was the, a lot more of, like... I asked because... And I, I want your thoughts on this too, Daniel, because I don't tell my daughters about Islamophobia. I don't want that to be a crutch. I don't want that them to ever say that, oh, you know, I can't do this because of being Muslim. I don't want that to even enter their, their frame of thinking. Or I know it, it already comes from other peripheries in culture and whatnot, and I don't want to be a reinforcement of that uh, of that attitude that, you know, that, that my my kids could ever ascribe any of their failures towards Islamophobia. 
because I feel like there's enough successful Muslims in this country and in the UK that that you can't ever use that as an excuse that for you for you not to have success over here. Well, there's there's definitely internalization of Islamophobia. It can lead to like a victimized mentality. There's definitely psychological implications for Muslim kids, and I think we're in the aftermath of that, like with Donald Trump and uh, some of these recent ISIS attacks in the past few years um, that have saturated the media. So I, I agree, like there needs to be some uh, caution with parents and in, in being very careful and exposing their children to all of this news because it's just very psychologically burdensome. And I remember like, uh, when I, you know, post nine eleven, when that whole thing happened and I didn't really have, I was in, uh, eighth grade, I believe, no, 10th grade, um, when nine eleven happened and it was very, I, I didn't identify as a Muslim very openly at that time. I was just kind of coming into my own and learning more about Islam, becoming more practicing. But then when I was in college, I was like really, you know, more dedicated um, as a Muslim. And that's when I really f- started feeling like psychological weight <laughs> um, and the whole idea of mass surveillance, um, you know, the idea that my emails could be read by the NSA, the CIA, just because I'm Muslim and they sus- might suspect that like I'm causing trouble. Like that was really disturbing to me and affected me like it affected me psychologically so i would be very careful and and, and i was and i was in college at that time so i can't can only imagine what like a younger child would experience um going through that so i i agree with you you have to be cautious well i think you're saying that okay for um kids you'd want to shy away from exposing them to Islamophobia or telling them that, oh, this happens and stuff. But that's kind of something that you can only do if people don't identify you as Muslim right away. You know, for girls, if they are wearing hijab, like you, that will be happening. And so I was actually from um, the African-American community, you know, after Trump was elected, there was, you know, a gathering where people were talking about, okay, so what can we do now? How can we mobilize? An African-American Muslim woman, she was like, you know, this is just now happening. The racism and Islamophobia is really getting bigger now toward the Muslim community. But, you know, the African-American community has been dealing with this for years. And we talk to our children about racism to prepare them, you know. Absolutely. And so I don't know if yeah, it's right I, or wrong no. or how to do it. But I, I feel like there's a place for it. Yeah. There's a place for it. I'm not saying there's no place for it at all. I'm just saying that those... Uh, that type of education has already come from, um, you know, schools and uh, community leaders. And I don't want to be a reinforcing uh, figure in their life, um, just reinforcing those attitudes in, in, into their, their psyche. I, I grew up with um, before 9-11 or any of this, and we had uncles who would say, oh, you know, you can't become a lawyer because you're going to you're going to have to drink with judges and you're going to have to you're working with Jewish people who won't ever accept you for who you are. And they've developed all these different um, stereotypes in your mind or different. Uh, they affected your psyche in a way that uh, you could never overcome. So that, that that's really important to me that that we as parents 
be really careful about how we're you know yeah, how, you, you don't want you don't want your kids to be naive right so you want them to know like that you want them to have a certain level of street smarts and right. to know like look this is the way the world is especially when they get older like i would say high school age but exposing them to kind of the uh you know 24 hour news cycle or i mean for example in my house we don't have a tv Right. And we don't plan to, you know, give the kids a smartphone until they're much older. So there's going to be natural limitation of what they're exposed to. But then we want to control what we convey to them. So we do want to convey uh, we want them to be street smart. We want them to not be naive about the situation in the world. But we also don't want to burden them psychologically and in a way that they would internalize that Islamophobia. Right. I, I want to get back to the conversation of hijab, um, just to tie out some things. So, I feel like we all agree that there is a legal requirement to hijab. Am I right? We, we're all of us here. Yeah. Now the question is is all about the modes of communicating certain requirements. So, um, Daniel brought up the point about how a parent has a certain moral right to kind of, you know. Enforce if you want to use the terminology. Is that responsibility? You, responsibility and right. You know, the child has a, a duty to you know listen to the parents, respect the parents, especially. You know. What about in, in the religion of Islam? Is like you always hear you know that we should be giving advice to each other, dino nasiha. But then like dudes aren't allowed to like sit, tell sisters or like if an imam on the minbar at Juma Khutbah says something about hijab, he just gets put on blast by like. They do though. Men are always telling women to wear hijab. Yeah, so what's wrong with that? They always do. I think we fixate too much on hijab because there's everybody telling everybody to all all these young girls wear hijab, wear hijab. We're fixating it on a lot, and I think to the detriment of other accomplishments and other development and other nurturing that our community desperately needs. You know, Um, and I think one of the things that leads other girls to see, okay, yeah, I do want to wear hijab, is seeing other successful women who are wearing hijab. And that's a point that um, you touched on, right? And that, that played a huge part in nurturing your daughter to want to wear hijab. Right. Seeing other women who are vocal, who have agency, who are still, you know, um, striving to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then wearing hijab, right? And so whenever we focus too much on just that aspect of it, I think we are not focusing on salah. We're not focused on, on genuine spirituality that goes more than hijab deep, Right. And I think that is one of the problems that we have is that like all the men are fixated on are the women wearing hijab. All the aunties are also fixated on are all the girls wearing hijab. You know, so as a community, we're expending so much time, so much mental and physical energy on who is and who is not wearing hijab appropriately or inappropriately. When if we directed that energy toward other things, we well, can accomplish a lot more. So I, I think as men, we fixate on that because we realize its importance. We know more than you do as a woman, how important it is. Like my my theory is that every man has a subconscious or a conscious reaction to every interaction they have with a female, whether they know it or not. Whether it's in a blink of an eye, it's a glance. They have uh, an interaction where they've saw a woman and they realize, okay, well, is this a possible mate for me? So every interaction of a man with a woman regardless of whether they're married whether they're beautiful or not they're they're making a split second decision that this person is a possible mate for me or not 
that and that is is true across the board. I think uh, for some men, you, you will, mean biologically? Yeah, biologically, it's built in. Like, and we know that as men, that's why we see it as so. Why we see the importance of hijab so so much more than women do. And I know what I mean, where when, summer you, is when going, you say see, you mean experience, like exactly. Experience. So your experience of women wearing hijab. Yes, okay, fine. It has this biological component to it. But at the same time, living in the US or in any Western country, you're not going to get 100% of every female interaction being with a woman that's wearing hijab, right? So ultimately, why not devote that energy to your own spiritual development where you are really amazing at lowering your gaze or you're really amazing at distracting yourself or you're really amazing at, you know, figuring out another way to cope with that as opposed to fixating on hijab because no. yeah isn't hijab a two-way street right there has to be that other component and one thing that like i've learned that through personal development is ultimately the only person that you can control is yourself so right? real yeah. quick uh, i want to like this whole th- concept let's talk about islamic dress if if we if we may right in the early in my early 20s this is what 13 14 years ago now in the early 2000s would be you know i used to shave my beard until i used to be clean shaved until I was like 22. And then I started growing my beard, growing a beard. And then back then, beards weren't like trendy. Like it wasn't a thing, right? And a friend of mine told me, like, be- growing your beard will do a couple things for you. It's a keystone habit. We can talk about keystone habits. It's like something you can do that has multiple effects. One of the things he said was, like, number one, like, Muslim chicks won't flirt with you because they'll know you're like off limits. <laughs> Not Muslim chicks, you know, they don't, well, you know. Maybe, <laughs> but uh, and then you will see yourself in the mirror. It'll have some kind of psychological effect on you. Okay, I'm I have a beard because this is from the Sunnah of Rasulullah and I have to implement and I have to follow some example. Granted, now I remember when I first started, it definitely had that impact. Now, granted, it has to keep up, but I will say at the back of the day, and I thought the same way about hijab. Like, okay, if because I'm well, when I was single. I was like, there's no way I'd marry anyone with hijab. My parents would mention someone without hijab. I'm like, yeah, forget it. You know, she probably don't even pray right. Because like, I looked at it as a keystone habit. Now, granted, I'd be, I'm a lot more jaded now in my, my mid 30s, and I'm like, you know, even hijabis like, you know, get around if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so just because you have hijab on doesn't mean nothing. You get what I mean? So like, I person, but like, I I can see where the the logic, like, I think the natural logical progression. Would indicate okay if she wears hijab, then it will lead to other spiritual benefits for her, not just one. It's a, it's a keystone habit, so I think that's why maybe why as men we've always focused on it in our natural. And I think the older imams and stuff still maybe are. I don't know if they understand that there's all these nuances to to girls who wear hijab. Uh, but as someone who's grown up, you know, now in the last you know fifteen twenty years and. Seeing people and whatnot, interacting with people, hearing stories and sometimes horror stories, you realize just because someone has hijab on doesn't necessarily mean there's some, you know, there's some angel either. Right? No, yeah, of course not. Yeah, I agree. Like with both of you, I think that there are extremes in the community. Like sometimes there's too much of a fixation and there's too much focus on on that one issue. But then on the other side, you have people who are completely de- delegitimizing the issue. And basically saying that, oh, hijab, like that's no one's business that, you know, that's all about personal choice. We shouldn't even be discussing this issue. That's an extreme as well. Um, So I think balance is required as with all things. 
uh, when it comes to hijab uh, and the beard. And I mean, even with the beard, like some people would say that, oh, what is this focus? What is this fixation on the beard? It's just facial hair. Um, and, you know, no, it's not just facial hair. This is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. This is what Allah, um, you know, there are these moral implications and, and it affects your uh, dunya and the hereafter. So, so uh, we have to keep things in perspective. So to segue, uh, hijab is just a, is a subset. The reason why it's such an issue, this Facebook post is because the greater issue here is the issue of feminism. And I'd like Summer to, so I don't get accused of mansplaining to <laughs> define what feminism is i think um so feminism takes a lot of different forms right feminism coming from someone who is uh non-muslim western female she may be coming from feminism as okay my right to be to have everything that a man also has so equal rights right and for me as a muslim i've always seen islam as being um pro-women right because it's giving us rights and it's giving us all these freedoms um, that weren't necessarily available to women, you know, 1400 years ago. And at the same time, instead of defining me as, you know, in relation to any other man in my life, I'm actually defining myself by my relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I feel like that is the most empowering thing about Islam. And so within Islam, I see that as being like the, you know, Muslim feminist. So, okay. So with other faith traditions, is there something like that? With other faith traditions, is there something like that as far as Christian? Feminism. Yeah, let's, let's say Christian feminism. Like, couldn't a Christian woman say, like, you know, I have a, my relationship with Jesus, you know, and make the same analogy? How is Islam any different? I in think that those sense? are nuns. I don't know specifically though. I don't know specifically if there's a movement within theological Christianity that there is a. Because a lot of people have this problem. Like, there's this angle that people are coming like Islam is a feminist. If you're a feminist, come to Islam. Well, I that it just doesn't make sense to me because, and I, you guys can help me understand it. Why Islam is a feminist religion? When there's things that are within our religion that it's not equal rights for women. For example, inheritance. It's not women do not inherit more than. Uh, a daughter doesn't inherit more than a, a son would. So explain that to me. Like, if you're coming from this paradigm of equality, how are you going to achieve, uh, how are you, how are you going to bring feminism into Islam? And yes, Islam came and gave rights to women, uh, that they didn't have, like own property, uh, in a time when most women could not own property. But there's other things about Islam that there's, there is no equality in. So I don't necessarily think that Islam is about equality between a man and a woman. I think it's about equity between a man and a woman, right? Because a man's... uh, What's the difference? Just explain for our listeners. Equality would be that you get $10, I get $10. Equity would be, you know, you get 15, you get, uh, you know, equity would be maybe getting 100% of your expenses. And then maybe your expenses are $10, but my expenses are, you know, 25. So it's more of a percentage, I feel like. Equity okay. is giving the each person what they need based on how they need it. Um, I've seen this comic before where, you know, equality and equity are explained where equality is um, three young boys are looking over the fence to watch a baseball game. And equality would be giving each of them one box, even though these boys are different ages and different heights. So the youngest one still can't see over it. Right. And the middle one can barely see over it. And the tallest one, he doesn't even need a box. But equity is giving each one enough boxes to be able to see over the fence, right? Yeah. So um, I don't know. That usually visually explains it very clearly for me. Um, and so 
I think there are definitely people out there that can express this more um, eloquently than I can. For some issues, like, okay, uh, inheritance not being the same number, um, a lot of that I just put on Allah SWT being al-hakim and being the most generous and being the most wise you know there may be things within and within islam that i never understand but, but don't you think feminists can say that no that islam is not a feminist uh, feminist religion because of that point in, in in particular like there is no equality between sexes when inheritance is not of equal value so i don't necessarily think islam needs to be feminist in those terms right if they're if they're going to define it that way then it doesn't need to accommodate to that definition you know islam is what it is and i feel like it's pro-women because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala affords me all of these rights and all this equity that i don't find with any other theological system so out there. It, islam is also pro-man though right it's pro-woman it's pro-human pro right and i feel like allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us so he knows our natures the best right pro and so whatever <laughs> so feminism is necessarily pro-woman feminism a lot of people say it's anti-men Anti-men. I don't think it's. I don't think we can exist if we're just anti-men. So we got to learn how to live with each other. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, baggage that comes with that that term. So, uh, Daniel, do you know what is? Because I've I've heard of first wave feminism, second wave feminism, third wave feminism. I don't know if there's a fourth wave. There's either. a third. I've heard of all. This. I have no idea what feminism actually is. To be honest, apparently I benefit from feminism <laughs> according to Summer. <laughs> but uh, she can elaborate on that later. But like, yeah, you're the academic here, man, Mr. Harvard. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So feminism has a very distinct history, and um, if you study that history, there's you know, it's usually categorized as first wave, second wave, third wave, maybe a fourth wave now recently. But basically, to describe it, first wave was about women's suffrage uh, in the West with That's the women's Susan B. Anthony era. All right, the right to vote, okay. uh, women's right to vote, um, and, and generally be, have a political presence. Uh, second wave feminism um, be, it was more philosophical. It was more about um, women being the second sex, right? Like Simone de Beauvoir, one of the famous uh, femi second wave feminists, arguing that women actually have been marginalized um, and have been victims of this overriding system of patriarchy that has relegated them to a marginal status of oppression and there are different ways that language and society and culture and clothing and so on and so forth uh, denigrates women and puts them in this position of subjugation vis-a-vis -vis men so this is second wave feminism third wave feminism is very different still um, things like intersectionality come into play with third wave feminism. Um, sex. What does that mean? Intersectionality. So it means like uh, when when we consider systems of oppression, we have to look at not only gender distinctions like men oppressing women. We also need to look at like racial, because black women, you know, have uh, have it worse than white women versus white men versus black men so there are different kind of in intersectional identities that need to be taken in, into account in our analysis of you know different social structures so that's intersectionality in a nutshell but um you know sex positive um feminism comes into play in the third wave this idea that women need to own their sexuality and be sexual beings 
and really, you know, uh, be even more, you know, stereotypically feminine and um, be very sexually active because this is empowering. So this is some of the things that you'd find in third wave feminism. Transgenderism is also an offshoot of third wave feminism. Um, and that, and second wave feminism is in contradiction to third wave feminism on the issue of transgender issues. So you often find beef and conflict and argument between second wave feminists who are still around, um, and, and third wave feminists. Wait, so transgenderism is the, the way they deal with transgendered individuals and how they're perceived in the feminist community. Right. So, you know, the idea that um, a man who feels that his identity is a woman, okay, so that individual is a transgender uh, woman, Um, that person as a category, as an identity who has also been oppressed by the cisgendered class, by people who, you know, cisgender meaning their... uh, the gender that they feel they are matches like their biological sex. So, so that's norm, the normal folks. <laughs> <laughs> a right. very fancy way of saying normal folks. We we talked about this uh, for with all of our listeners in our Kareem? gender. Yeah, with Kareem. Yeah. Yeah. So we can call them normal folks. So um, so that uh, spelled C I S by the way. If you guys want to Google it up. Cisgender. CIS used to be computer information systems. Now it refers to gender roles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so many different terminology that you have to keep up with when you study feminism. So second but, wave is more acceptant of transgender or not? No. Third no. wave is, right? Third wave is. So it sounds wave. like we we're, we're, we should be cool with first wave. First wave is pretty, like, pretty good, it's, Islamically speaking, right? It's about, like, random, like, rights that... <laughs> if you believe voting is he, okay. He's getting there. Sounds like he, he's... he's, he's uh, uh, unless you believe voting is cool for Akbar. Unless you're outside the fold of Islam, then it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can... Uh, I mean, it's hard to evaluate uh, first-wave feminism. I don't think there's anything majorly objectionable, objectionable, though you could like point to some of the changes that were happening in that point in history and how... Um, you know, starting in the 1920s, going into World War II, especially in, in the West, how social structures were changing, the family was breaking down, um, women increasingly were expected to, like, join the workforce and leave the home, which left children, you know, um, in the hands of, like, public institutions, um, which ne- didn't necessarily have their best interests in heart- at heart. So there are all these kinds of social transformations that happened um, starting around that time of first wave fem- feminism that had far reaching implications, like major social implications that really rocked, uh, you know, modern civilization. And, and in my view, you know, created a lot of problems that we're dealing with today. So I would even have a problem with like some of the things in first wave feminism. I have a problem with feminism in general. I think that well, um, well, you know, well, to be very frank, I mean, we can get into some of these issues. and Well, the, naturally, my question would be, well, what's wrong with women's right to vote? Why would you be against feminism in that respect? Like, if it's just limited to that, like, I don't think that's okay. an issue. So, so you're not against first-wave feminism? Well, like I said, it had a lot of other um, social phenomena that came historically. The reason why I'm bringing it up it. is because people understand these terms differently. And by you saying, like, I'm not against, I'm not... Uh, I'm against feminism in general. People will say, "Well, 
he's against first wave feminism as well, which you're not, right? What about second wave? What about like what particular parts of, I guess, this Muslim feminist movement that we're seeing? There's, I don't think it's even a movement, but I think there's definitely a niche of women who who attribute a lot of their rights or a lot of their freedom to Islam. And so, what do you see as being problematic? Um, whenever they they say, okay, Islam is you know pro women and it it's helping me to establish my rights and get my rights as a human being. It's just rhetoric, right? It's just rhetoric. Like you're just using, and when I say you, I don't mean you, Summer. I That's mean right. like it's just the usage of certain kind of politically correct vocabulary um, to frame Islam. Like we already know what Islam says. Like we have a 1400 year old tradition. Like if you want to characterize that as pro woman or pro man or pro animal and kind of use these specific terms to characterize that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect analogy. Like you can describe it in that way, but does it causes confusion, right? Because if you adopt that ideology, like, environmentalism for example and say islam is environmental it's pro-green it's a green religion right and you mean it in the very best way and you'll cite hadith like you know you can cite all kinds of hadith um to show that islam is so environmentally concerned but if you're teaching that to the community and you're teaching that to your kids and they and they start thinking yeah islam is all about the environment but there are, there's also aspects of environmentalism that contradict Islam and are actually very uh, objectionable from an Islamic perspective. And like, for example, you could, you know, be an environmentalist and believe that veganism is required and eating meat is murder uh, and is actually a grave injustice to kill an animal for your own consumption. Like, that's disgusting. And you think that Islam is environmentally friendly so you've taken on that ideology and you you know you come to that conclusion that eating meat is murder and then you you know realize that oh wait but the prophet prophet muhammad ate meat right it's very you know established that he ate meat the sahaba ate meat the scholars spoke you know at length about how to slaughter animals how to hunt animals like you have volumes of uh, books written on just that topic. So you reject because you think Islam is because you think your religion in your heart, what is right is this environmentalism, um, where meat is murder. You reject that entire tradition and you end up leaving Islam even. And I've seen this happen many times when it comes to the issue of feminism for exactly this reason. Like it's a perfect analogy. So, um, what do you think? What do you think about that? I think that's a great way of kind of clarifying the issue where it's not necessarily that um, the rights that are given to women within Islam are problematic. That's not the problem. The problem is whenever we try to um, go backwards and say, okay, no, we're going to be feminist. And then any part of Islam that doesn't fit now we're against Islam. Right. Well, then why use that language? Like why invite the possibility of confusion? Because here's here's the thing. And. This is something that is really, really close to me because I just, it bothers the heck out of me. It's the idea of the Muslim community so, so uncomfortable in their skin that they react to every social construct that's happening, whether it's... uh, Capitalism, democracy, liberalism. Racism, yeah. we're, we're just insecure, right? That's we're insecure and we want a response for this. And we want to f- 
fit in and we 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 want to be accepted but in the community we don't want we we don't want people to accept us for who, who we are we want us to be acceptable to them like hey look at the good side about about us look at these things about our religion that are acceptable to you because we're talking about these issues and all of a sudden i'm gonna start discussing everything about my religion related to this social event that's happening i think that's a really great point you're bringing up but it's also deeper than just trying to please others it's also kind of trying to please ourselves because we don't understand islam deeply enough to value it and say okay islam is perfect as it is it doesn't need to also say it's also democratic or it's also capitalistic or Or pro-women or environmentalistic or pro-women i guess but um text it make it it and going back to kind of my own journey and trying to understand, okay, why should I be Muslim and how am I going to practice Islam and all those kinds of things? A lot of times in class, like uh, kids would be like, wait, you don't go to church? Why not? Where do you, what, what is Islam? And so, and when I started wearing hijab, same thing, you know, there'd be a lot of questions and I can't just like for that dialogue, it wasn't enough to say Allah wants me to. You know, and so that's whenever you start to think, okay, so what are what is the hikmah behind this? You know, okay, it's to protect me as a woman. It's to serve me as a woman. What then? Look how and then whenever they have questions like how did, um, you know, Islam oppress women and this and that. So then you have, um, you know, you have a reactionary answer to that. And I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with having those answers and under trying to understand the hikmah behind them. But again, like you're saying, like you don't want to necessarily say, okay, I will take on feminism first and then where Islam fits in, it'll fit and where it doesn't, I'll leave it, right? You want to have Islam first and then see, okay, yes, it does afford rights to all of these different demographics because it's created by the ultimate creator. Yeah, I actually, I like Summer's point on how sometimes the ideologies are able to articulate certain benefits that we might be able that we may decipher from some of our religious leaders. Even though the truth is still there, just a matter of articulation of the English language. Right? Yeah, I I ideally what I wish we could do is if we could transcend the politically convenient language and really hearken back to our own language and our own principles and hearken back to a time where Islam was the dominant thought system, the dominant paradigm of morals and intellectual life, and really try to revive that instead of relying on some of these other ideologies and language that really, I mean, at the end of the day, cause more problems for people's uh, iman um, than not. So if we can avoid, like, if we can talk about, you know, the treatment of women in Islam and make an argument that, you know, not like it. It's such a lost opportunity when when we talk about the hijab. I know we said that there's a fixation on the hijab, but let me just as an example, like there's a it's a lost opportunity when we when we're talking about hijab, we kind of default to this liberal language, and I mean philosophical liberalism, not political liberalism, and we can talk about more about that later, but. Uh, default to this kind of feminist liberal language. Oh, hijab is about choice. Hijab is about like you have agency. You can choose to wear it or not. Like that's a lost opportunity to to really explain the the value and the benefit and the wisdom of hijab to Muslims and non-Muslims, and really asserting that kind of higher ethic and those higher principles, uh, morally, metaphysically, theologically 
um, behind uh, something like hijab. And it's uh, that's a lost opportunity because we can then convey the real beauty and, and the real wisdom and power of Islam on its own terms instead of defaulting again like like a crutch really um, on, on things that you know make Islam look like it's you know a wannabe sure. kind so, of religion. So let's talk beyond theoreticals and get back to practicality. Fifteen-year-old summers in high school and classmate asks her why are you wearing hijab like what so what would her response what would be the response you would think would be more ideal wait what was the context so like you why don't you tell tell the situation oh so i think mine's question is if you were me in rural mississippi 15 years old and wearing hijab and getting questioned by your peers why are you wearing hijab what would you say that's your question. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what would be the appropriate response? Because I think you were saying, well, I guess can't say Allah told me to because they won't get that. Well, but- that was part of my response to them. Right. But I would also I would follow up with that and be like, look, everyone around me, like I have I knew girls who would wake up at 5 a.m. to curl their hair and put on like a inch of makeup and, you know, put on the latest outfit or whatever. And I wanted to be free of that. I wanted to be free of being judged by what I wore and how I looked and kind of like this outside appearance that I was bringing into class, which ultimately I still had an outside appearance, but it was very on my own terms. And so um, I would tell them that, that I really want you to focus on my ideas that I bring to the table, my opinions that I bring to the table, my work that I do, as opposed to saying, oh, well, her hair looks super shiny today or her outfit's really cute, you know, um, and also to free my time and energy and mental space from focusing on all of those things. I was not a girly girl, so I really didn't <laughs> care about most of those things. So it was very freeing in that aspect. Yeah, you can talk about um, things like that. Um you can also talk about like uh, the idea of like the hijab as a crown, like this is something that is adorning you. It it is a kind of um, symbol of piety. It's a, it's something that distinguishes you. Like if you you can make analogy with you know throughout world history and all traditions, like w- people cover their hair, people cover their heads, like crown, like a queen wears a crown. Um, this is something that you even see in the animal kingdom, like, uh, the adornment of birds, like they're, they also have a certain kind of coloration and a crown and, um, the kinds of ways that they're adorned, that Allah has adorned them. And you can make all kinds of analogies with the natural world, with history, with other religions. And, you know, where have you seen like in a church, like the, uh, Virgin Mary without her hair covered, sure. for example. You can, you can, and not just Christianity. I mean, any other tradition. So that's the weight of history, right? The weight of human history um, speaks to the normalcy and, and really the 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 power and the um, the prestige of of covering the hair, especially for women, but even men. And why should we ignore that? Like, just because something is culturally one way here, like that, the oddity is modern Western culture. That's the oddity. That's the, what's strange when you look at the entirety of history and how people dressed. Muslims uh, are really normal in that sense. Um, so, yeah, I would start with definitely hijab is about um, what Allah has commanded and, and we obey 
Allah, we obey our maker when he tells us to do something. And then you can, you can go on at length about this, uh, about the wisdoms and the beauty and some of these thoughts that a non-Muslim can also understand and appreciate. And, and I would teach my daughters this idea of controlling the narrative, control the discussion where talk about how, um, mass media and popular culture have over sexualized women. And talk about how um, that that it's become a denigration to women rather than an empowerment, and control the discussion in that sense where you're not the one who's always on the defensive, you're not the one who's always responding to every question that's coming your way, but and you're if, you're controlling the discussion, you're telling them the faults in their uh, in society right now. Like if you want to talk about empowerment, um, the perfect analogy is that. Um, the most powerful agencies and the most powerful organizations and the most powerful people on earth hide themselves and keep themselves out of public view and control what other people can see of them, right? Think about the CIA. Think about the NSA. Think about like how uh, the rich and wealthy have tinted windows and they don't go out in public without like covering themselves or masking themselves. That's something that's very obvious. Like that's a source of power. Hiding yourself and and controlling what others can see of you is a source is in itself a source of power. So I mean that's a very easy analogy that you can make. Um, so why you know why should our that's dress awesome. be any different? So shifting a little bit back away from uh, hijab and back onto feminism within Islam, um, you were mentioning that. I believe it was second wave feminism that was talking about how there is an underlying patriarchy and it has, you know, resulted in a system of oppression towards women. How do you feel like that fits in with um, our, or how does that viewpoint is often taken by Muslim women as well that, you know, a lot of our cultural baggage has that, you know, patriarchy embedded deep within it. And so how do we reconcile that with our practice of Islam? Patriarchy itself is a big topic and that we can get to, but I just want to give the disclaimer that I agree that there are very negative and damaging uh, cultural practices. And I've experienced that uh, in my own family, um, immediate family. And yeah, I'm not going to deny that abuse exists and it's very damaging and it's scary and it's terrifying and we need to have uh, solutions to that problem. Um, so that being said, uh, the question of patriarchy, though, this idea that there is this uh, you know, but, overriding uh, Daniel, system. Daniel, Daniel, I got to challenge yeah. you on one thing, though. I, I would argue that da- that abuse and the, the problems and the... And the the relationship that men have with women um, and the, the inherent problems that are with it, like abuse and rape, and they're, they exist in all cultures. It's not a Muslim problem that some people in social right. media are making a big issue of that, that certain things are Muslim men's problems as opposed to other men in, in society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I didn't want to qualify the disclaimer, but yeah, that's absolutely the case. Like, it's not a Muslim problem at all. Um, you know, I can also give other kinds of statistics to say that, um, when it comes to abuse and violence in the home, men don't have a monopoly on that either. And I mean, unfortunately that's politically incorrect or controversial to say, 
Um, I'm not saying that women are more abusive than men overall. Like the statistics don't bear that out, but it's not a huge discrepancy. Like when it comes to violence in, in the household, because when it comes to like abuse of children, women are, you know, far outnumber men in that category. Like the statistics show that women are actually, so this idea that men are, have a monopoly on violence or abuse or manipulation, that's not the case. Like there, and in terms of like domestic abuse, like spouse to spouse, um, again, there's not that much of a discrepancy. There is a, men are, you know, above in terms of being abusers in certain cases. Um, but there's a lot of women, wives or girlfriends abusing their, their husband or boyfriend. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen that too. Um, and it's just as problematic as just as, uh, horrifying. So, I mean, we, we need to like look at the statistics and I know that <laughs> I've gotten in trouble for like bringing up these statistics before, right. but I, I don't think it's something that we can sweep under the rug. Right. And, and do you, do you feel like, uh, the, the argument that there is no rape culture in this country, does that hold merit that, that, um, women are, the majority of rape cases are um, women who have actually just felt regret and want to report rape. No, I wouldn't say majority. Uh, the, 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 so, like, the rape culture, again, it's something that's very politically charged, like that kind of vocabulary. Um, when it comes to the actual statistics, so when we think about rape, it's, I think, the stereotypical or the archetypal image that we have of that is like a strange man you know, finding a woman on the street and like kidnapping her and raping her. Like that's actually the, as far as the definition of what constitutes sexual assault and rape, that's not like the majority of the cases. That's the minority. In that minority of the cases, yes, it's men um, who are the uh, assaulters or they're, they're the perpetrators. Um, when it comes to like campus rape, um, I think that those definitions have become so broadened and widened that a lot what the statistics show is that oftentimes men are the victims of that kind of rape culture if we want to call, call it rape culture and the like uh, I shared an article about this um a while back on my social media um where they were the uh, writer was contemplating this kind of paradox is that as the definition of what constitutes sexual assault is broadened, then more men are victims in under that broader definition. So what I mean by broadened, like, so uh, for example, now like what's considered rape under a lot of on a lot of, a lot of college campus administrations consider rape to be um, if there's not affirmative consent, you know, for every single step of, sexual intercourse right mm -hmm. so if like you change positions or like you do something else like uh you know bro boyfriend or girlfriend on at a frat house if there's not affirmative consent in each step of that then that's rape like that the the uh you know the partner can accuse that person of rape but that you know that seems like very overbearing of a standard of consent like but this idea of consent has been so, you know, fetishized almost and broadened. And we can talk about that. I know that's a very charged well, statement yeah, to make. Well, yeah, so that's, you, you but, remind me of that because, like, I was thinking, okay, so what? Is the woman, like, is is there, like, a date rape 
pill for like men now <laughs> that they put in their drink. No, but it reminds me of a scenario. I remember in college, a, f- a good friend of mine was telling me how he was, you know, with some chick outside in some like, I don't know, back alley somewhere. And the next thing he knows, she's going like she's giving him fellatio. I'm using a technical term here. So you guys got to use no. the, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I mean the, you know what I mean? And he's like, he didn't, he didn't ask for it. She just started. She just, next thing you know, they were, I think they were like making out. The next thing you know, yeah, that's what she was doing. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> considered know? rape. That's considered rape. Um, and you know, he just he didn't could. report it though, right? But like, is that, so would it be, would it, it wouldn't fall in the statistics though, because he's not reporting it. Yeah, but by the definition that they've given, like, if even if you're like, you know, if a boyfriend and girlfriend are just fooling around and, you know, unsaid it goes to like, you know, second base or third base or whatever the, that means, um, without affirmative consent, like, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Like, throughout the process. Well, that takes all the chemistry out of it anyways. <laughs> if you're no. asking every time, like, that just freaking sucks. You, you know what amuses <laughs> me, though, about all these. So you're pro-rape, basically. Yeah. That's what you're saying. No. I guess. I, hey, if, if that gets this podcast more hits. <laughs> doesn't, con- doesn't consent mean anything to you? Like, this is what the response is. Like, when people say that this is an overbearing standard, like, how can this be the standard? It used to be no means no, right? No. It used to be if they said no, you have to stop, right? I think we're jumping so many steps ahead of where our community actually is because even talking about sex, even like saying that word within the context of people who can who it actually is relevant to, it's like no, don't talk about it, don't say anything, you know. And having our communities even talk about okay, what is this? What does consent even mean? What does that even? within the context of Islam, what is sex and how to approach it and intergender relations. I mean, the only intergender thing they hear is that girl should be wearing hijab and you should be wearing your gaze. And like, because that's it, right? Because we never stray past that enough to say, okay, when a boy does talk to you, what do you do? You know, and whenever a girl does talk to you, what do you do? And how do you abide by some guidelines? And, you know, um, I have friends who have tried to put together sexual education programs um, through Masajid and different communities to try and reach out because whether we like it or not, Muslim kids are also engaging in this, right? Um, and I know Daniel has get, some thoughts on that. They get <laughs> shut down. They get shut down on, you know, speaking about this. And obviously no one is saying that, like, we should go into Masajid and, like, distribute condoms and say, okay, you know, practice safe sex or anything. But there's well, are, no are content. That. They are, but I'm saying that there has to be that balance, right? Where it's not just lower your gaze and wear hijab. And then on the other hand, you know, the society that we're living in is talking about all of this stuff in so much detail and it's happening around them constantly well, in college. Uh, and, you know, and yet we're not providing them any kind of true guidance for it, you know? I like my dad's, my dad's advice is when I was in high school, <laughs> sophomore year of high school. He's like, hey, um, these uh girls at school now they're probably gonna be into like you know that's that thing now so he's telling me like if a girl ever comes and tries to give you a hug you just gotta shove her away <laughs> that was the birds and the bees talk that you got that was pretty much it and then it was like and I, and I mentioned this on the podcast before he was just basically like he dropped the s word like no s word you know sex on my way out of when i was going for college and that was it yeah. Well, you know, but like I, I, maybe it worked because I didn't I, I didn't fool around with no girls until I got married. Yeah. So, that, so. so yeah, I, I mean, I'm coming from from an academic perspective. Like we're talking about feminism, so this issue of rape and consent and the place that that has in, um, you know, sexual relationship 
and sexual ethics like that's very relevant to islam so a lot of people like who who take on this very uh, uh robust view of consent like they have a problem with islamic law because they say that oh well the sharia doesn't respect this notion of consent um to the degree that's morally acceptable so we have to really reform uh, islamic law we have to like I mean, that's the best case, reform. And uh, some of them just say, well, we need to just reject this. Like, this is not representing our sexual ethics. Like, consent is not, like, well, I think the respected whole pr- here. The whole problem of consent is that, from a judicial perspective, that they're going, an American judicial perspective, is that they're going to eventually realize that the only institution that it will protect a woman and a uh, a man and a woman's relationship and their sexual relationship is marriage. And I think that this is the only way that they can, um, they can sort things out because the definitions of, uh, of consent can be uh, so many different, uh, shades, I guess. You well, know? What about marital rape though? Well, marital that rape, that, that's you, I guess one, one of the outliers, but, um, I, is, I can't... is that a thing? Is, is that a thing or is that some concoction of like, <laughs> Maybe you have to know. talk to a scholar about that. Oh, uh, yeah. Some gender um, studies professor made it up. To, like, I, know, I know that John, Professor Jonathan Brown got in a lot of trouble for uh, his response to this. Uh, but I thought he had a reasonable response that um, from the perspective of Islamic law, the concern is with harm. So, like, if a husband is, like, abusive to his wife, such as is causing, like, bodily or emotional harm, then he's liable for that in an Islamic court. Um, so that does, would include any sexual activity that was harmful to her. Yeah, like if it caused physical harm, mm-hmm. um, then it would be like something that he'd be liable for. So the so consent is something that's very philosophically charged, and it has a lot of baggage um, that we would need a lot of time to dissect. But again, it's not a concept that in its current manifestation and in the current conversation in the modern West, like it doesn't, you're not going to find it like in that same way in Islamic law. You're not going to, you know, read a Shafi fiqh manual and find, you know, a third wave feminist notion of consent. So that does that mean like if we're committed to feminism, um, do we reject, you know, do we reject fiqh? Do we reject Sharia? Um, that's the kind of question that Muslim feminists today have to ask themselves. And I think that, you know, the obvious, you know, if you're a Muslim, the obvious thing is to reject that view of consent or to reject it. And then ideally, you know, you can critique it. And, and that's some of the thing that I try to do in my work is I try to critique some of these uh, modernist liberalist um, concepts and ideas But yeah, I think that we shouldn't really adopt that kind of language, adopt those concepts, because when you adopt those concepts and you also accept and adopt the underlying ideals and values, and a lot of them conflict very directly with Islam. Yeah, it's funny. And the whole term of consent is always interesting because in like fiqh, as far as marriage goes, like the silence is consent when a girl is proposed to and whatnot. But Daniel, I I think you, uh, I could probably, we you probably, I know you haven't eaten, and I know you're on your like soapbox right now. You probably will go to a fudger <laughs> if I let you. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really even scratched the surface uh, of feminism. Like, 
<laughs> we That's could uh, my favorite topic, I, I, unfortunately. I, I'm glad you're here for the weekend, though, so we could uh, do something. But here's the thing. Uh, we got to get you fed. You, you're not... You're That's just for, an excuse. Well, I'm <laughs> Don't pretend. Eat. You're just trying to shut me up. <laughs> no, no. We're going to have a follow-up episode that will be released at a later date. Yeah, I um, would say so. Plus, uh, Summer has the flight to catch in the morning, so she's been courteous, oh. courteous enough to stay with us till past 1 a.m. Of course, I couldn't miss this chance. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, otherwise we'd just be man- there'd be three dudes talking about feminism again, and like yeah. li- some listeners would be upset. But you know, our, our niche audience, our our the guys, our good old boys club would be like, "Yay, rock on, guys! Let them <laughs> let them feminists know what's up." <laughs> uh, Papa Bear uh, Abuisa would be really happy. Yeah, for sure. Well, summer will summer <laughs> we call will be Papa up. Bear here. Yeah, uh, maybe on the next show, maybe we'll leave summer off, and then we'll get really lit. <laughs> okay. It'll be unhinged <laughs> stuff. I can't say no. around a female will be like said in a future episode. And I'll let it all out. He'll say everything, and then Sim will like be paranoid that we're gonna lose all our followers. Malcolm no. Luke's uncensored. You guys are gonna have ratings through the roof. Yeah. yeah it, it, for some reason, uncensored always sells. At the end of the day, people are that. That's apparently works for this podcast. So. After ten years, it'll be like a director's cut will be released. Director's cut. Then my daughter will listen to it. And like dad is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I have no respect for him. Yeah. yeah, yeah then no bringing it all back, she'll send you a message uh, on Facebook. Yeah. Then, <laughs> I'll do you can say no man should make that decision for you. You know, I actually hope I'm still podcasting in ten years. Yeah. So inshallah. Yeah. But uh, Daniel, Jazakallah for coming through. Welcome. Um, and you know, uh, my pleasure. We look forward to having you on for. Several more episodes because I think there's just a t- like. We'll see the response to this episode first. And, uh. I, I I bet it's, it's gonna be like people are probably south. Like if we even like give them a hint that we we're releasing a show with you beforehand, they're gonna be salivating and gonna be <laughs> real, real, real thirsty for it. So uh, for our listeners out there, uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at the Mad at gmail dot com. You can also like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And we are also on Podcast Addict for you Android folks. For my co-hosts, Sim and Summer, and our special guest, Daniel Hakikaju, I'm Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamualaikum.